Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am, or that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven." And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Two weeks ago, after concluding looking at the opening epistle in this work by Keech, we noted that there are true churches and there are false churches. And true churches consists of eight things. They are a congregation of godly Christians. They are baptized upon the profession of faith. They come together as a stated assembly. These people must by mutual agreement and consent give up themselves to the Lord. Number six, they, or number five, they give themselves up to one another according to the will of God. Number six, they ordinarily meet together in one place for the public service and worship of God. Number seven, among them the word of God is duly administered. And number eight, the sacraments are duly administered according to Christ's institution. That's what we're aiming at as we aspire to be a true gospel church or a true and orderly gospel church. Now last week, we said that those eight things presuppose what we call covenantal church membership, an idea that is hotly debated and even hated in our day by professing Christians, covenant church membership. And so we took to the New Testament last Lord's Day evening to try to make a cumulative case for church membership as follows, defined as follows. 
the formal, covenantal, and voluntary submission of oneself to the doctrine, members, and leadership of a particular church in order to carry out the worship and discipline instituted by Christ for His people. That's, what, that's how I would define biblical church membership. That was last Lord's Day. Biblical church membership, I'll, I'll summarize these words, is formal, which means it is conducted according to a procedure that makes the boundaries clear as to who is in and who is out. It's covenantal. It involves parties, precepts, privileges, and penalties for those who are unfaithful to the covenant. That should not be strange as we saw this morning. Our God is a covenant God. It should not be strange that His people would then be a covenant-keeping people. Church membership is covenantal. Church membership is voluntary. That is, it's not coerced in any way. Biblical church membership is an act of submission of bringing oneself under the guidance and care of what we could call the church. And by the church, we mean her doctrine, the teaching and instruction that is to be believed and followed, her members, that is everybody else who has joined in the same covenant at that place, and its leadership, the officers of the church, as they act according to the Word of God. Biblical church membership is a submission, a bringing of oneself under those, the, the church in those three areas. And all of this applies to a particular church. Biblical church membership is not uh, such that one can be a member of this church and that church. But it is of a particular church an identifiable congregation to the exclusion of other congregations. That's, that's what we would say is biblical church membership. And again, we, we tried to make a cumulative case for that from the New Testament. We made this case by pointing to the analogies used by the Spirit to illustrate the church, the descriptions given by the Spirit of the life of the church, and then the structures of activity and ministry and discipline that we see laid out by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We put all of this together and it makes a cumulative case for formal, covenantal, voluntary submission to a particular church in order to carry out the worship and discipline instituted by Christ for His people. Now I trust that all of us here are sufficiently convinced by the Scriptures about this subject of formal covenant membership. A lot of you are absent, so if you haven't gone back and listened to that, do so. Yeah. I'll use this as a, a, an opportunity to make this, I don't know if it's called a plug. Um, in a lot of churches, the ministry of the Word is um, somewhat sporadic. Um, they may preach from this text this week and this text next week and this book this week and then another book, and, and it's all over the place. In those types of churches... If you miss a week, and then you come back the following week, you can jump right back in and you, got, you know what's going on because it's, it's almost brand new every week. We don't typically do that. We work our way through books of the Bible, and I try to find a study where we're working our way linearly or, or, or progressively. And so if you miss something, you miss something. You're going to come in the following week, and you're probably not going to know what's happening. Um, that, I try to give sufficient recapitulations, but if, you've, if you're absent, make use of the... The audio recording, uh, I don't receive any uh, 
of the proceeds or anything from whatever. <laughs> so that's not a plug for myself. That's why I said it's not a plug necessarily. It's just it's useful for you all. But I, I don't think anybody here, nobody here has ever come to me and said, I don't believe in church membership. I think we're all sufficiently convinced about that or, or have at least submitted ourselves, those who are members, to that concept. This evening I want to zoom out a little bit and consider this church church member relationship a little more generally. So what I want to do is we're going to read through these these two paragraphs together and we will note some of the finer details of them. But the goal is in that is to fix in our minds a picture. I want us to have a picture of how this relationship is to function between the church and the church member, or more specifically the church and the aspiring church member, but it also applies to the church and its members. We need to get a picture in our minds. Some of you would love to see the Grand Canyon. Maybe you've seen it. You want to see the polar ice caps. You want to see the rainforest. What I like to see is a, is a, a picture of the church as it is laid out in Scripture. I like to... to to try to contemplate what this looks like and what a mighty force this could be on the earth if the people of God would do what the Word of God says. That's what I want to see. So enjoy your trips. This is what I want to see. Well, I'll, I say this all the time. I'll get to see all of that other stuff someday. It's all going to be ours one of these days anyway. I'll see it all then. But right now, this is, this is what captivates me. Is, is this, this picture of what is set forth. And, and these old writers, they had this picture in their mind. So let's read these, these two paragraphs, beginning at number three on page six. Before each person is admitted as a member in such a church so constituted, they must declare to the church or to the pastor that they shall appoint what God has done for their souls or their experiences of a saving work of grace upon their hearts. Also, the church should inquire after and be fully satisfied concerning their holy lives or good conversations. So there we, you see the two subjects laid out. You've got the person who desires to be a member, and then you've got the church. The person coming for membership has a job. The church has a job. We'll look at that in a minute. And you, there are scripture references there. We won't look through all of these, uh, and you can on your own time. I'll point out they, they primarily deal with being ready and able to give an account and a testimony of the work of the Lord in your own heart, which is what someone, he just said, they, they have to do that. They have, you have to give evidence of your conversion and salvation and a testimony of what God has done, and that, that should not be... A, a, a disputed point or uh, request from a believer. Next paragraph. When admitted as members before the church, they must solemnly enter into a covenant to walk in the fellowship of that particular congregation and submit themselves to the care and discipline thereof and to walk faithfully with God in all His holy ordinances and there to be fed and have communion. And worship God there when the church meets, if possible, and give themselves up to the watch and charge of the pastor and ministry thereof. The pastor then also signifies in the name of the church their acceptance of each person and endeavor to take care of them 
and to watch over them in the Lord, the members being first satisfied to receive them and to have communion with them. And so the pastor gives them the right hand of fellowship as a church or church organic. We have two texts there. We've looked at them uh, already a little bit, and, and they'll come up more and more as we walk through this. But those both deal with the concept of the oversight of elders and submission to the, the leadership of a church. But the first thing that I want to point out from these two paragraphs is the word admitted. Admitted. Before each person is admitted. Next paragraph. When admitted. To be admitted is defined as permitted to enter or approach. To be allowed. To be granted. Or to be conceded. And this word here is, is what we would call a passive verb, which means to be admitted is something that happens to you. It's not something you do. Follow me? To be granted is something you, you get. It's something you receive. It's not something you do. Admitted. Now, we've all been to events where in order to pass a certain point or participate in a particular activity, you have to have one of those little red tickets that often come in a large roll all together, and the person has to tear one off, and they give it to you, and you have to carry that ticket somewhere, and you have to give it to somebody else. And on that ticket, many times, I don't know if it's still like this, but many times there would be the word uh, admission or admit one. And you give that ticket, and you are what? admitted. You are allowed to go further. That ticket grants you admission. Now think, what does that ticket represent? That ticket shows the person guarding the entryway that you've gone through the proper procedure to gain access and that someone else has authorized your entry. So as you present your ticket, the person at the door grants you admission. I will allow you to pass because you've given me the ticket. I will admit you. So in that sense, you were admitted by another person. You were required to submit to a particular and proper procedure in order to gain the privilege of entry. Admitted. To use a biblical illustration, picture Queen Esther as she desired entrance into the presence of the king who was also her husband. Now, the law was that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. And what do we read? When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached. What happened? Esther was admitted into the presence of her king and her, hus her husband. 
You get the idea. Admitted. Now let's, let's keep thinking. I know I say things like, all right, let's think. Like, stop not thinking and start thinking. Let's, let's just keep thinking the whole time. If we dissect this idea of admission, what are the various parts or ingredients? Well, there's, there's the, the notion of entry or participation in something. Let's, let's use the, the illustration of the, the ride at an amusement park. You, you want to participate in that thing. You want to ride that ride. So there's the notion of entry or participation. Entry or participation is closed off except you be permitted. You can't just walk up and, and go as you please. Three, there are, there, there's the party or parties who want to be admitted. There are stipulations or procedures to follow in order to gain admission. And then there are the party or parties who oversee that procedure and then allow admission. We, we could call them the guards. All of this is assumed in this word admitted. Now, Keats uses this terminology for church membership. And I think he's right to use it. But what do these ingredients look like in the church? That's our question. So we have this concept of entry or participation, which reminds us that everyone is not in the church by nature. There are those who are in and there are those who are out. You young children, you come here every time the doors are open, every time your parents come to church, you are with them, you participate, you sing, you read along, you're, you're learning, you're growing, but you are not members of this church. You don't just get to say, I'm a member. There are some who are in and some who are out. Remember that the church is a community with definable boundaries. So you have that ingredient of entry or participation and Keach even says, before each person is admitted as a member in such a church. You don't start out a member. You don't just get to walk in and say, I'm a member. You're not born in. You're not shooed in. You're not grandfathered in. The church is a community with privileges and promises that do not belong to all men. So you have that ingredient. Entry. Participation. You also have this ingredient that entry is closed off except by admission. Because of formal covenantal membership, only those who formally agree to the precepts of church membership and meet the qualifications for admission can enter. Only the people, going back to the illustration, who give their dollar and get their ticket, only those people can then carry that ticket and gain admission. So it is with the church. Only the people who go through the procedure and meet the qualifications can come into membership. So the individual seeking membership does not have the right to enter membership simply out of desire. Just like with the office of, of a pastor, elder. If any man aspires to the office of overseer. Well, okay, a lot of people aspire. That doesn't mean you get in. There, there's more to it than that. It's the same with church membership. You, you don't get in just because you want to. Aspiration to membership is not the ticket. Self-will is not the proper procedure. I, I just really want to. I, I just would love to be a member of this church. Well, that, that's great, but that's not the ticket. Individuals do not get to thrust themselves in by human power through the doors of church membership. Entry is closed off except by admission. 
Then you have the parties who are to be admitted, that, that person who is voluntarily offering themselves to be a member of the church. Then you have the proper procedures. There are stipulations that have to be met. A formal covenantal arrangement must be made. And in these two paragraphs, Keach listed the various stipulations and things that have to take place. And I'll, you can find your spot there. I'm not just going to read straight through again, but these are the things that he said. Six things. First, they must declare to the church or to the pastor that they shall appoint what God has done for their souls or their experiences of a saving work of grace upon their hearts. This is what we call a profession of faith. You must make a verbal profession. Here's what has happened to me. Here's where I stand with the Lord. This is what God has done. Number two, they must solemnly enter into a covenant to walk in the fellowship of that particular congregation. And that phrase, in the fellowship, means a lot. And you can read our confession, chapter 27, on the communion of saints to get a, a picture of what it means to enter into the fellowship of a group of people, but they must enter into covenant to walk in the fellowship of that congregation. Three, they must submit themselves to the care and discipline thereof, that is, of the church. So this is that submission to the people of the church, the care and the ministry, and the discipline of the church. So they, they must submit themselves spiritually to care for and to be cared for by those people in that church, they have to, a part of this, this covenant is that they would walk faithfully with God in all His ordinances and all the commands of God. They covenantally agree, I will walk in the commands of God. I, I'm, I don't think that what he means by ordinances there is meant to be exclusively baptism in the Lord's Supper. There are times it does and times that it doesn't. Number five, a part of this covenantal agreement is there to be fed and have communion and to worship God there when the church meets, if possible. The word there means with those people in that place. And to, to worship with God when the church meets means that particular group of saints. To become a member is to uh, enter into a covenant that when that church meets, I'm going to be there with that church. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. And they give themselves up to the watch and charge of the pastor and ministry thereof. That is submission to the leadership of that church. These are the, 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 the stipulations that they have to agree to. And that, that a, a part of the procedure is agreeing to these things. As well as they must covenantally uh, commit to keeping up these covenantal Agreements, But these, this is the, the proper procedure that one must go through. They must come to the church and enter into a covenant agreeing to all of these things so that they can gain admission. Then you have the parties who oversee the procedure and grant admission. And this is going to be our main emphasis tonight. Who has the job of overseeing the, this procedure and granting admission. Who is that party? The answer is you, the church. The church. Or we could say, if we wanted to be technical, the church under the guidance of its pastoral leadership. But it's sufficient to say the church oversees that. The church 
oversees the procedure and grants the admission. Notice how Keach words this. They must declare to the church, and then parenthetically, or to the pastor that they shall appoint. I believe it's him later on, or it might have been John Owen who would say that in some cases if a person is just absolutely terrified to death, then they can give their personal, their, their profession and their testimony in a private setting to the pastors or a smaller group. But historically, if you wanted to join a church, there wasn't just an elder interview. That happened in front of everybody. But some people who would get so nervous and shaken up that they couldn't even speak, they'd say, well, we, let's, it's okay if we have a private conversation. But first and foremost, would say, to the church. He said, the church should inquire after and be fully satisfied concerning their holy lives or good conversations. The church. Before the church, they must solemnly enter into a covenant. It says the members, speaking of the church, the members being first satisfied to receive them and to have communion with them. It's the job of the church. Now, there is a role, a special role that the pastors will play. He says, then the pastor also signifies, after these other things, the pastor signifies in the name of the church their acceptance of each person. So as the, as the, the elder or pastor does this, it's not just him saying, I, I receive you. No, he's just the mouthpiece for the congregation. He, he simply speaks in, in the name of the church. He says, so the pastor gives them the right hand of fellowship as a church or church organic. In other words, and this will come up in the future as well, the pastor acts as the executor, think to execute, the executor, the executor of the will of the church or the congregation. The congregation makes the decision. The congregation oversees. The congregation vets. The congregation says, we will accept this person. The, the elders or pastors say, okay, we hear you. We will verbalize that publicly. We will make that known. So we see that church membership is defined, as defined last week, as a matter of admission. Those who seek to join a church are to be admitted they come as outsiders, and they want to be insiders. They submit to the proper procedure, and the church body, under the oversight of the elders, evaluates the person. This is why it's so important that the congregation knows so-and-so desires to be members of the church. Why? Because now you have the job of evaluating that person. And it's sad that we would say, so-and-so wants to be a member, and, we, and you still have members of the church who've never even spoken to that person, have made no attempt to evaluate that person. That is your job, not the job of the elders alone. The church evaluates the person. Do they have a credible profession of faith? Does their life match their profession? Are they willing to submit to this church by way of church covenant? The church body then grants admission by affirming the person and the pastor publicly grants admission to the person according to the wishes of the church. The pastor just verbalizes what the church has agreed to do. Throughout this process, it is the church which is at the helm. The church is in command. The congregation is in charge, not the individual. The individual seeking membership must be evaluated. 
They have to prove that they can meet the standards. They have to satisfy the inquiries of the other members, and we also ought to be tender and compassionate and gracious as we do that. But they, they have to satisfy the inquiry of the members. In short, they must submit themselves to the church, its doctrine, its members, and its leadership, and they have to agree that moving forward, that's what I will do. So in membership, or in the membership process, the church with its pastors is authoritative, not the person seeking membership. The congregation is the guard at the top of the ramp with the stick, with the red tape wrapped around a certain point saying, you must be this tall. Are you this tall? No, I'm sorry, you're not. Well, then you have to go back down the ramp. Or you are this tall. Welcome, you may ride this ride. The church has that position, that power, that authority. Now, this is in great contrast to the modern church where the individual is king and churches are, are really just dying to fill seats. We'll take anybody as long as we got somebody here. That's, that's typically the attitude. And so people are offered all kinds of incentives to join. Membership classes are as short and concise as possible so as not to hold the bar too high. Remember, some of us remember when we planted the first church in Hickory, the class, the membership class was called 24. You know why? Because it was 24 minutes long. Membership class, 24 minutes. Why? Well, we don't want to keep them here all day. But we do want to keep them in this church. So get them in, spit out some things at them, and, and let them join. That was how we functioned. That was wrong, by the way. That was erroneous. That, I'm, I'm arguing against that. But that's the way many modern churches act, and this has turned individuals or has caused the individual to act like the Yelp of churches. You know what Yelp is? The, the website where you go and leave reviews on everything? The individual becomes the Yelp of churches. And individuals test them all and leave their reviews, and they are, act as though they're trying to decide which church has earned their presence on a Sunday morning. Who gets me? rather than the church acting as the authoritative body. And again, I think this is one of the reasons that the visible so-called church in our day is a mockery. It's a laughingstock because we are clamoring at the feet of anybody and everybody just show up and make us feel like we're doing something right. Make us feel important rather than saying, here are God's standards, meet the standards or you're not welcome. And we'll be as small as we have to be but that's not the case in many places. We need to understand that the, the church membership is a matter of admission, that the church is in the place of authority and the individual submits to the will of a congregation. Now, all of this sounds different depending on where you might be in this process. If you are an aspiring member, this might sound a little daunting, a little intimidating. You might even think it sounds a little arrogant. Who are they to evaluate my profession of faith? Well, we're actually the body that Christ has ordained to evaluate professions of faith. That's one of the roles of the church. But you might think that. If you are a current member, it could come across as sounding a little more severe than it is. I hope that you would see it as empowering. But it does increase the obligation that you have to vet potential members. The, the question, you don't come to the elders and say, how did they get in here? The elders would respond right back, I don't know, how did they get in here? This is your job. Not that the elders don't have a role, but the church has, has a primary 
a place or a role to play in this. Regardless of how it sounds, our question should be, is it biblical? That's the question. Does the Bible teach this? What biblical principles or texts are we using here? Well, I would say the text that we read at the beginning, the principle is the principle that we, would, we could call the principle of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Look again at Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here, Christ promises to build His church, and in this scene He promises, quote, the keys of the kingdom of heaven... To Peter. With those keys, Peter will be able to, quote, bind and loose on earth in a manner that is, uh, is the word paramount, tantamount, equal to what happens in heaven, related to what happens in heaven. Now, keys are for opening and closing doors. Right? Pretty simple. For letting someone in or for letting someone out. If you've got the keys, you've got the, the a power of entry or exit. Binding and loosing, we could also use words like forbidding or allowing. To bind, think of the, the, the Pentecostal who binds Satan every Lord's Day. To bind, or you can think of Christ binding the strong man. To bind is to forbid or to stop, to keep out, to restrain, to restrict. To loose is to allow in, to welcome in. That's how this works. To bind, stop, restrain. To loose, welcome. So here are the keys. What are keys for? Opening and closing. What are we going to do? Bind and loose, restrict or welcome. Now that might sound a little confusing, at first, until we read two chapters later, in the context of the local church, and especially in the context of church discipline. Now look at chapter 18 again. Verses 17 to 19. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector... Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, if we had not had chapter 16, and we only had chapter 18, we would have gotten to binding and loosing, and we would have said, what in the world is he talking about? But because we have chapter 16, and I could say if we only had chapter 16, we would say, what in the world is he talking about? We, we put these two things together, we see the correlation so here we have again in chapter 18 this reference to binding and loosing. Now the implication is that we're, now, we're still talking about those keys. Although he doesn't say, use the, the reference to the keys again, he just says binding and loosing. Our, our mind is supposed to say, we just learned about that two chapters ago, the keys, we get it. The keys and binding and loosing go together. Now in this context, what is binding? 
In Matthew 18, it would be removing someone from church membership. Forbidding. Stopping their continuance in the the assembly. Keeping them out. Restraining them from the privileges. Putting out somebody who was in. Or if we want to use the, the imagery of the keys, opening the door so that they can be removed and then shutting it to keep them out. That's, that's what's happening here. Now, who has the authority to do this? Who has the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Now, if we were uh, papists, we would say, well, Peter and all of the popes who come from the line of Peter. But we, we understand that's not what's happening. We would say, actually, the keys of the kingdom of heaven have been given to the church. And uh, again, not the Roman church, not the, the, the papacy or the Roman Catholic church, but the true church. The offender in this scenario had to get to the point where he refused to listen to the church before he could then be put out. It is the church who wields the keys. Christ says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, that you is plural, the apostles here, standing as representatives of the church. And we could collaborate this or corroborate this with 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul, we saw Paul say, when you are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, etc. The gathered church, the assembled church. Here's the principle. The church, as an assembly gathered in the name of Christ, acting upon the word of Christ, has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That is, the judicial power to bind and loose, to open and to close. The church. Now, in this context, Matthew 18, the subject matter is church discipline. The power is being used to bind. The keys are being used, we could say, to close the door and keep someone from the privileges of church membership. It's binding. And very often, that's the only context we think of this, uh, these keys being used in. But think about it. What is the, the opposite side of that that is still implied here? The keys don't just close the door. They don't only bind. They also loose. They also open the door to welcome members. In other words, the assembled church has the keys, the authority to admit its own members. It goes both ways. It's not just excommunication. In the same way that someone should rear up on their hind legs if I said, me acting all by myself, I have the authority to excommunicate someone. You should say, no, you don't. In the same way, if I said, I have the authority to bring someone into membership all by myself, you should say, no, you don't, because the keys have been given to you all, or or we all, not an individual, the church. Here's an important point. Only the assembled church has the authority to do this. Not the individual seeking membership, not the elder or elders, not a small influential group in the church with a lot of money and prestige and power. No, only the assembled church. Do you see that? Now let me say it again real slow. Only the assembled church 
has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Only the assembled church has the authority to close the doors of excommunication. Amen. Only the assembled church has the authority to open the doors of membership. The individual does not have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. No individual, not even a pastor, has the keys of the kingdom of heaven. No individual can excommunicate themselves or anyone else through binding. We talked about this before, how we can sometimes mentally excommunicate people ourselves. I just don't like them. I'm just not going to associate with them. You don't have the right to do that. This is also a reason that you also don't have the right to say, I'm not going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not something you come to get. It's something you come to receive. You are administered it by the church. And to refuse the elements of the supper is to excommunicate yourself. I cut myself off from this body. You don't have the right to do that. You don't have the right to excommunicate anybody else. Say, I don't think they should have the elements. I, I, I know what they've been doing. They don't have the right. Well, that might be true, but only the church assembled can make that decision. The other view, I've sinned. I better not come to the Lord's table. I've sinned this week. I've sinned against somebody, and, and I'm, I'm holding that against them. That's, that's one, it's refusal to repent. But it's, it's basically Roman Catholicism. Get yourself right and then come. That's not what we believe. It's a means of grace for people who need grace. No individual can open the doors of membership for themselves or anyone else through loosing. Am I saying it slow enough? This is important to grasp. The concept applies both ways. We typically only consider it from one side, namely the discipline side. The side where you have a member who is in sin and they must be removed. But we rarely consider the full picture. Yes, there are times when someone needs to be removed. But there are also sometimes those outside who want to be inside. And the church has the authority in both directions. And sometimes there are those inside who want to be outside. And I don't mean apostates. I mean members of a church who are not under church discipline, who want to end their membership with that church or transfer their membership to another church. That happens, right? That's, that's a real scenario. Based on what we've seen. Who has the power to authorize such movements? Who has the power? The only appropriate answer is the church. The church. Only the church has the keys. Now, does this mean no one can ever leave a church? Of course not. It doesn't mean that any more than it means no one can ever join a church. People join churches, there's a process. People leave churches, there's a process. What it means is that the assembled church is the only body ordained on earth to authorize those movements. And this is why 
historically. In biblical times, and even still some in our own day, some churches make use of membership letters. Has anybody ever heard of they're, they're joining by a transfer of letter? They're moving their letter? That's, that's this. That's this. James Renahan from Edification and Beauty. If you don't have it, get it and read it. You won't think I'm crazy. In the case of transfer of membership, members from distant churches could be received upon the presentation of a letter of commendation from their home churches. Listen to this. When such a letter was not at hand, communication would be sent to the distant assembly in order to ascertain the status of the individual. In other words, the church contacted the other church. So the, you got the individuals down here. We're going we're to go from here to here. Okay, that's fine. Up here, we're going we're gonna to authorize this transaction, this movement. Why? Because that's the job of the church. Paul hints at this practice in 2 Corinthians 3.1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? That was a thing, letters of recommendation. There aren't churches everywhere. There are false teachers everywhere. There are people creeping into churches all over the place wreaking havoc. How do we know who's legit and who's not? Well, letters of recommendation. In Acts 18.27, when Apollos wanted to move to the area of Achaia, Corinth, the Corinthian church, we read, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Those people over there don't know who you are. You're just going to show up and start preaching? Listen, take this letter. They'll receive it from the church. And I believe that we have an example of such a letter in Romans 16, 1 and 2, or uh, 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 this idea. But Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centriae. Where's she from? Centriae. She's a member of this church. That's, that's where, her home church. I commend her to you, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. You imagine a woman showing up at Rome. Hey, I'm, I'm a member of the church in Centriae. Um, I, I, I need some help moving along my way. I, I, I help with the Apostle Paul. We're real close. I worked with him. Hold on, lady. We don't know who you are. Well, when they read this, oh, the Apostle has commended you. He's given his testimony. He's vouched for you. This is, again, biblical and historical. What's the point? It's the church and not the individual who has the power to authorize even what we might call lateral movements from church to church. The church does that. The keys of the kingdom of heaven have been given to the assembled church, not the elders, not any individual members acting apart from the assembled church. Therefore, bringing in members cannot be enacted by the elders or any individual members acting apart from the assembled church. Most of us understand that clearly. If, if, if we just came in, you came in next Lord's Day, and there was a new family, and I said we'd like to welcome this family as members of the church, I hope that most of you would all would say, whoa, 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 we don't, what's happening here? What's going on? We don't know these people? Who made this decision? I hope that somebody would come to me and say, we need to have a talk. What's going on here? We understand that. It can't be enacted apart from the assembled church. Removing members cannot be enacted by the elders or any individuals acting apart from the assembled church. If I came in, we came in next Lord's Day, and there was a particular individual who was not here, and somebody says, where's so-and-so? And I said, well, I excommunicated him last Thursday while I was 
at, at Walmart, I saw him doing something questionable, and I just excommunicated him. I told him, don't come back. You, 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 should, you should say, whoa, that's not right. You don't have the authority to do that. Biblically, you can't do that. That happens in the assembled church. And also, the, assim- the individual does not bring themselves into the membership of the church apart from action by the assembled church. Again, we agree. Somebody, a stranger, couldn't just walk in off the street and say, hey, I'm a member of, of Covenant Bible Church now. We would say, mm, no, you're not. We, we get that. But then when I say that the individual does not remove themselves from the member of the church apart from the action of the assembled church, we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can do whatever I want. I mean, I came here. I can leave when I want to. Why is that the only area where we say this rule no longer applies? It's not right. Why is this so? It's because the church has been given the keys, the power to do this. And, and beneath that or alongside of that is this principle. And it's astonishing how many men would point this out. Apparently it was a big deal and, and it still is if we think about it practically in many places. They would point out that when somebody joins a church... They're joining a church. It's not very startling, is it? What they mean is, you're not, you're not joining a pastor. You're not joining the elders. You're joining a church, a group of people, of, of godly saints, baptized upon profession of faith as a stated assembly, agreeing to meet together, to worship God, the people. It's church membership. So the church has the authority, and when a person comes to join, what are they joining? They're joining the church. They're joining you all. They're joining we all. So when a person just steps up and says, well, I'm out of here, who are they leaving? They're leaving you. Not not just the elders, not just the pastor, because that's not what they joined. They joined the congregation. Now, I get passionate about this stuff. As I said, you can enjoy the Grand Canyon. This, this to me is so thrilling because this is the power of Christ on the earth that people play with. Isaac Chauncey, and we'll, we'll see some quotes from him in this book later on. Isaac Chauncey was a Congregationalist, so he, he, he believed all of this stuff, and, and, but he baptized babies. We could put it that way. Um, listen to him, Isaac Chauncey. A person thus joined to a congregation is joined to and become a member of a spiritual corporation to the whole body, not to the pastor or elder only, as some ignorant people think, and therefore run away when the pastor or elder discuss them or dies, but are by covenant united to the church and are not discharged while that lasts. Without the church's leave, that is permission, without permission, though all the officers die. So you got no pastors or elders. Well, I guess I could just go my merry way. No, you didn't join them. You joined the people, the congregation. And he ties this later on to the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He says, as the keys are used in admitting persons to communion, so in their departure from the communion of a particular church. Every particular church being a whole house, a distinct body politic, there can be no regular admission of members or departure of any from communion, no, not from one church to another, without a church act, both of the one and the other, 
in the use of the keys. A, a church act is, is like a, a formal public action on behalf of the congregation. You, you don't join a church apart from that. You don't leave a church even to join another church apart from public church act. He says, a member, therefore, of a visible church may not at his own pleasure depart from the communion of the church to which he is joined to non-communion with any church, that is, just leave altogether, nor to the communion of another church without the leave, that is, the permission of that church whereof he is a member. Why? Because without the keys, the doors are locked. If you want to come and go, you've got to talk to the ones with the keys. That is the assembled congregation. So you can see why. This is in conclusion. James Renahan, Edification and Beauty, he would say, quote, in every case, membership was a serious process, entered with caution. The necessity of regeneration and the attending visible fruits required scrutiny of potential members. When admitted, expectations were high. End quote. See, the church is the body of Christ on earth. The church has authority and power. And we do not honor Christ, practically speaking, when we act like the church really has no power. We act like it's no thing. We'll go back to the illustration that we all know of the, the men who abuse the wife left to their charge, the king who went on a far journey and he left his bride into the care of these men who abused her and dressed her up like a prostitute to draw the attraction of men. We all know the illustration. And we, 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 in, in our minds, we only attach that to the, the attractional-minded churches who put on the, the glittery facade and make the church into a, a, a concert and a parade. Yet yeah, those people are doing it all wrong. This stuff I've read here is hated by most Reformed Baptists. This is, this is despised by people. It's, it's, it's saying Christ's church really means nothing. She has no power. She has no authority. She, uh, she is here for my service. And she had better work hard if she wants to get my presence in her ranks on a weekly basis. I don't think, I, I, I think it's safe to say most of us men would agree that if someone spoke about our wives that way, we would be upset. We would be upset. But for some reason, when it comes to the bride of Christ, this just flies. This is how it goes. And we wonder again why the church has so little power in, in our nation, so little power anywhere. It's because she's become a mockery. Even by the, the people within her ranks, she is treated as nothing. I don't, I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think we honor Christ when we do that. When we think of these things, and as we go through this study, again, the goal is that we would, we would stand in awe and wonder and amazement at this institution, this glorious bride of Christ that He bought with His blood, that He vested with His power, and He left us here on earth, and He's going to return someday, and He's going to ask, what, what did you do with what I left you? What does my bride look like? Well, she's over there getting my, getting my dinner and doing all these things to serve me and, and I'm making her earn her keep in my mind rather than I've been serving her 
and attending her and caring for her. That ought to be our attitude. Well, let's close in prayer.